Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be it may be good may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. It may go well with you. Sorry about that. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. One of the things that strikes me about these verses in, uh, in Ephesians 6 is that they're so straightforward. You know, Paul is uh, not writing in Ephesians 6 the way he started this letter. Uh, Ephesians 1 he, it takes him 14 verses to get his first sentence out. Um, we have 14 verses, but that's just one run-on sentence at the beginning of Ephesians. And uh, when I preached from this letter earlier at the beginning of chapter 4, um, we noted that the whole first three chapters of this letter are just this it's like a painting, and he's, he's using all the crayons in the box. He's using every color he can mix, and he's just trying to paint this incredibly beautiful vista for all of us of this is the gospel. This is the amazing thing that God has done for us in Christ. And he makes then this shift at the beginning of uh, chapter 4 and says, Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord... I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called and, and goes from there. So he's like, in light of this beautiful picture that I painted for you over the last three chapters, not that he wrote in chapters, but with all of these words, therefore I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. To sort of, in, in Galatians chapter 5, he he calls it keeping in step with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. Line your life up with the wonder and beauty and majesty and goodness of what God has done in Christ. Um, and he's actually been thinking about that ever since. And when we get to Ephesians 6, uh, he turns his attention to parents and children. And let me just read again for us what he says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I guess when, when Albert first, you know, gave me these verses and asked me if I would preach on it, I sort of felt like, can you, you know, is there a sermon here? Like, it's sort of like, children, obey your parents, honor them. Fathers, don't frustrate your kids. Teach them and train them to, you know, walk in the Lord. Amen. Have a good week. It's, it's so straightforward. There's not a whole lot of nuance here. But he is saying some things that are actually, I think, um, pretty profound and important and helpful and helpful to all of us. And so I want to ask uh, you to join me. I just want to take a moment to pray again and ask that the Lord would help us to see uh, really the, the goodness and benefit and uh, encouragement that's here for us in his word today. Let's pray. Father, I think about how Peter once said that um, some of what Paul wrote was hard to understand. And uh, this morning we have some verses in front of us that are so straightforward. And, um, and so they're not too hard for us to understand. And we thank you for that. We thank you for those times, Lord, when your word is direct and clear. And when you inspired writers like Paul to just give us helpful instruction. So, Lord, we pray. Uh, all of us know what it's like to be children. We've all uh, experienced that. And um, 
And some of us, Lord, are trying to work out, um, continuing to try to work out what it means to be good parents. And so, Lord, we pray that um, with this in mind, you would um, help us to perceive with our hearts and our minds all that you would um, give to us in truth uh, through your word this morning. And that it would be helpful to us, Lord. We do want to live in our families in ways that um, show that we love you and that we want to honor you and that we want to worship you and and, uh, reverence you. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us um, to learn what you want to teach us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, um, I do want to take a minute to, to sort of ramp up to these verses by trying to skim over um, the letter, which is a bit dangerous because there's a lot in the letter and I can be long-winded, but I am going to try to be pretty succinct and just say some comments about where Paul has been and why he's ended up here. Why is he interested in talking about children and fathers and parents? And as I said, The letter starts with this long uh, sentence that ends in verse 14 of uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And then Paul um, is stirred and provoked and compelled to pray. And uh, he prays in Ephesians chapter 1. And then he prays again in uh, Ephesians chapter 3. And these two prayers, the one that begins in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15... And the one that begins in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, these prayers are like bookends for this uh, long section where Paul is, is unpacking, I think, three big ideas. And we get those big ideas from his first prayer, which is familiar, I think, and um, I want to read it. Verse 15 of Ephesians 1, this is the first of the two prayers that he uh, offers uh, in this letter. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He wants wants them to have wisdom, to have this, this knowledge that leads to um, insight and, uh, and, and that sort of works itself out in wise and informed living. Um, the spirit of wisdom in the revelation, um, sorry, wisdom and of revelation, revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know, and here are the three things, what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So three things that Paul has in his prayer that he desires God to give his readers. That they would know the hope to which he's called them. That they would know uh, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That this would be the knowledge that would result in wisdom. And he says that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. So something at the very core of who they are would open up and see and let in these three incredible truths. Power, uh, sorry, hope, uh, the riches of God's inheritance, and his power towards us who believe. And then he unpacks these three things, I think, in reverse order to how he prays for them. So The last thing he prays for is that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards those who believe in Christ. But then he goes on to unpack and he wants to talk about that power. And he says it's just like the power that raised, that he worked in Christ, verse 20 of Ephesians 1, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at at his right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet 
and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he says this power is the power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead and to give him a name that's above every name and every rule and every power and every dominion and every authority. He's been, he's been catapulted to the highest place in, of universal authority and he's been given as head to the church. And then Paul says, and that's what God is doing for you as well because he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, you too were dead in your trespasses. Jesus died because he offered himself for our salvation at the cross, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then he goes on, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of, his, of the great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead in, your, in our trespasses, sorry, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us who believe. So he says, the first thing I want you to understand is the immeasurable greatness of his power. This is the power that raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at, at the, as the authority over the universe. Jesus is Lord and it's the same power that raises you from the deadness of sin. And your reality is now determined by the victory of Jesus. You're seated with him in the heavenly places. So Paul's like, this is what I'm praying for. That, that the eyes of your hearts will be enlightened. And you'll understand the drama, the power, the wonder of how you have been repositioned from deadness to the throne room of God by the work of, of Jesus and by the power that God uh, uses to change people's lives. And then he goes on to start talking about this, uh, the riches of God's inheritance in the saints, which I think is his way of saying, I hope that in, I'm praying that in your hearts will be enlightened to see just what an amazing thing God is doing by gathering his church. God's chosen inheritance is his, is his people. That's his treasured possession. And so when Paul says, I, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened, that you would see the riches of his inheritance in the saints, he's talking about the, the wealth, the beauty, the majesty of the church that you would actually perceive uh, what an amazing thing God is doing by gathering the church. I think this idea starts to come through in verse 10 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for God, good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The church is God's workmanship. I think some English translations would come across more as, as masterpiece. This is his, his wonder work is the church. He goes on to say, um, let me see if I can find it. Uh, oh yeah, it's later. It's in Ephesians 3. He goes on to say, uh, let's look at maybe verse 8. Beginning in verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul wants them to see in their hearts the wonder of what God is doing when he brings together his church he says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for God in a hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So he's, he's saying, uh, can you see in your hearts the, the riches of what God has done in Christ? And here he uses the word, the manifold wisdom of God, which is being displayed in the church. And in particular, 
it's being displayed because it's not only Jews, it's not only ethnic Israel that is benefiting from Christ, it's actually the whole world, the Gentiles. It doesn't matter what your cultural background is. It doesn't matter whether what language you speak. God is now revealing this mystery that all along his plan and purpose was to reconcile all things, which includes all people to himself in the church. And he's saying, if you can just grasp this, this is my prayer, this is my longing, that you would know the power that God is, is applying to your life and that you would see in your hearts the unsearchable riches of what he's accomplished in the church. And then, last of all, he, 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 I think he begins to unpack the very first thing that he was praying for, that you may see the hope to which he has called you. And this, he just lightly touches on the fact that he's writing this from prison, and that there's probably some concern for him among his readers, uh, and, and they're worried about him. Um, so he says in verse 13 of Ephesians 3, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. And here's the last prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in christ jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen so paul first prays that the eyes of our hearts because he's also because this is scripture this is for us too that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened that we would see hope that we would see the wonder of what God is doing by bringing together his church, people from every tribe and nation, and reconciling them to himself and each other in Christ, and that we would uh, also see the incredible greatness of his power toward us who believe. If you can just get these things, if you can understand that just as Jesus was raised from deadness to life, that's what God has done for us. We've been raised from the deadness of sins to the throne room of heaven. If you can just see the wonder of what God is doing, that no one is too far away uh, from his grace and the, and the reconciliation that he can accomplish through his son, Jesus. And it, he, I love the image in Ephesians 3 that he says he wants to put the manifold wisdom of God on display before the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. When Paul speaks about rulers and authorities and dominions and powers, in the book of Ephesians anyway, it really has a negative connotation. He seems to be speaking about evil forces. It comes through in Ephesians 6 as well. And he's saying it's like God is, is putting the work of Christ on display in front of his enemies to say, look at what I am accomplishing through my son. Look at how I'm reconciling people to myself and to each other by the power of what Jesus has done at the cross. And he's praying, church, I'm praying that your eyes will be opened, that you'll see the wonder of what God is doing by bringing you all together and reconciling you as daughters and sons to himself and as brothers and sisters to one another. And then he says, you know, even though I'm in prison, my prayer for you is that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith and that you'd be able to see this, this wonder of what God is doing. And he, he just says the height and the depth and the length and the breadth that you would have this knowledge that surpasses understanding. And, um, you know, just this incredible sense of, of hope that Paul uh, is praying for as he speaks about Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. 
And he's, you know, this is so well known that at the end of Ephesians 3, as I've already read, he says, you know, now to him who can do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What a hope-filled way to end this first part of Paul's letter. So if Paul, if, if it's true that, that God is working so powerfully to transform our our situation because of Jesus. If it's true that in Christ, God has this mysterious and global and, and all-including plan to reconcile people from every tribe and nation and tongue in the church. And if it's true that we have a hope that, you know, God can do far more abundantly than we would ask or even think according to his power with, at work within us, I mean, now we're, we're excited. We've seen this picture that Paul has painted, and we're, we're sort of putty in his hands. We're saying, this is awesome. Keep going. Tell us, about, tell us more about what this looks like when we really understand this in our hearts. We've, we want to be people impacted by God's power. We want to be people who are reconciled to God as our Father and reconciled to one another as brothers and sisters. We want to be people filled with hope for the future. So what do we do next? Uh, and he says, well, I want you to live a life, uh, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And we say, right, exactly. We want to live that way. And interestingly, then Paul begins to turn his attention to some pretty hum, in a pretty humble direction. And he spends uh, most of, well, all of chapter 4 and, uh, and up until, I guess, verse 21 of chapter 5, really talking about life together in the church. And uh, he's really interested in how the Ephesians and how we are going to apply these truths of God's transforming power and God's great plan of redemption and God's hope for eternity with each other in uh, real relationships in a local church. So he says, living a life uh, worthy of the, uh, in the manner worthy of the calling you've been called means that we uh, will walk with verse 2 of chapter 4, all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Um, so, so Paul's saying, if you want to live a life worthy of these incredible truths that I'm pleading that God will reveal to you, it means you're going to treat each other uh, with humility, gentleness, patience. You're going to bear with one another. One of the most realistic, uh, you know, prayers that you can imagine in the New Testament. Just put up with each other in love, uh, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, that you would understand this, there's this incredible oneness to what God has done. And because God has this one and singular purpose that is fully accomplished in Christ, that's going to moderate and direct and motivate your actions towards each other. You're going to recognize this one body reality. You're going to recognize this one family reality that uh, God is accomplishing in Christ. And he goes on to say, you know, part of this is going to be about the gifts that you use. And he says, uh, you know, that God has given apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Uh, and that all of these gifts that he mentions in Ephesians 4 have a purpose that, that this one body is moving in a direction. There's, a, there's progress that, that Paul has in mind that's included with what it means to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That we're going to grow to mature manhood. That's the way he describes it in verse 13 of chapter 4. 
that we will no longer be children. This is verse 14. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. So he has this prayer, not only that we're going to get along, but that we're going to be moving somewhere together. That we're going to recognize that God gives gifts in the church and he mentions apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. And that, that these gifts to the church move us forward together. And we're, we're meant to be growing up into Christ. We're supposed to be maturing. We're supposed to become more resilient. In particular in Ephesians 4, more resilient in the face of uh, deceit and, and trickery and falsehood, that we'd, we'd gain this sort of wisdom and insight into how to walk wisely in a world where there are, where there's craftiness and cunning and deceitful uh, schemes. We're going to be people who speak the truth to each other in love and grow up into Christ. Um, you know, it, and he contrasts this, he does it twice in this sort of extended passage, but he, he contrasts this picture of of growing up into Christ with what's going on in the world. He says in verse 17, Now I say this and testify in the Lord, um, Ephesians 4 verse 17, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. You're going to have truth in your heads. Your, your heads aren't going to be filled with futile things. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to, the hardness, uh, due to their hardness of heart. They become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedily, uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So Paul's saying, practice humility, be patient with one another, bear with one another in love, move in the direction of maturity, because recognize there's this alternative of a darkened understanding and a calloused heart and a hardness towards God that sends people off in a direction of just looking for pleasure wherever they can find it. And that's futile. That's, that's, not, what, uh, that's not how you learned Christ. That's not how you grow up. So I won't say too much more about that except to just say that, you know, Paul is really interested in how we relate to each other in the church, that we're patient, that we're gentle, that we love one another, and that we're eager to maintain unity, that we recognize the gifts God's given, that we recognize the direction that he wants to move us towards maturity, and that we're aware that around us there's this other way of living that we need to be consciously avoiding, which is a, an, a way of hardness of heart, of callousness towards God, and um, this sort of scattering about for anything that can bring relief and pleasure, um, this greed to practice every kind of impurity that, that surrounds the Ephesians and surrounds us in this world. Um, then, just to skip into Ephesians 5 and, and try to get to where we need to be, um, you know, he then brings in this idea not only of being um, one, um, one body, um, but also being one family. So Ephesians 5 says, uh, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So we're, we're, we're children of our Father, and we're uh, meant to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And if it, the first emphasis that Paul has is that our thinking would be different and distinct from the thinking of the world, that we would have the truth of God so that we would be resilient against schemes and cunning and, and deceit um, and darkness that's, that's out there sort of in the ideas world. Um, in, in Ephesians 5, he turns his attention to our sexual lives. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named above, uh, among you um, as is proper among the saints. And so he, he unpacks this quite a bit, and we've spent time in these verses, but Paul is interested in our lives together, in the way we think, 
in our growing up into Christ. He, he's interested also in our sexual purity. And uh, um, let's see where else, what, what more do I want to say here? Let me just read some verses here at, uh, in the sort of in the middle of Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 15. And just remember again, this is still Paul uh, concerned to describe what it means to live a life worthy of our calling by living in a particular way in the church with each other. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for, and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, it's a great picture of a church and how we can live together as the church, and he even gives specific ideas about how to, you know, um, address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, to live these lives of gratitude and thanksgiving and encouragement to one another. And uh, this sort of, in a sense, closes out then a long section of verses where Paul has said the first thing involved in living a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called is that you're going to live a particular way together with one another in the church. You're going to be humble with one another. You're going to submit to one another. You're going to bear with one another. You're going to recognize that you're on a journey towards maturity with each other. You're going to be careful about deceit and lies and schemes that surround you. You're going to stay true to the the path that God lays out before you, that you grow up to become mature and resilient and strong. And this is even going to impact the most private parts of your lives. Your sexual choices are going to be impacted by this desire to, to not be people who are exploitative of others or taking advantage of others, but instead you're going to live purely and in righteousness. And you're even going to be singing to one another and encouraging each other because that's the first part of what it means to live a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called, is to live a particular way together in the church. So I would just commend to you these chapters, chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians, up to verse 21 of Ephesians 5, to just look at them and say, what can it look like for Trinity Grace to be a church that more and more is conformed to this way of living together? Because we want to respond to Paul's great masterpiece painting of the gospel and say, yeah, we want to live a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called. So, so let's live this way together as a church. And then in Ephesians 5.22, uh, Paul turns his attention to households. So first of all, it's been sort of the congregation. Now he turns even more uh, small and says, I want to talk about what it means to live a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called in your families. And he speaks about wives and husbands at length. And then he speaks, as, we're, as we have today, parents and children. And then he speaks about uh, slaves. My, my translation says bond servants, but slaves and masters. Um, it's interesting that Paul does this, that he, in Ephesians 5, verse 22, he turns to this sort of structured teaching about the home. And he says, I want to teach about husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. And uh, what's interesting about that is that Paul isn't um, doing something novel here. He's actually uh, laying out his version of a household code is what scholars sometimes call this. He does it as well in Colossians chapter 3, um, and Peter does something similar in one of his letters. But Paul is picking up the idea that there's a wise way to live in, the, in, in your family. Um, one of the most famous household codes um, is written by Aristotle, and I'm just going to quote 
a quotation of it, so this isn't all that Aristotle wrote about this, but in his work Politics, Aristotle, who lived in the 4th century BC, so quite a long time before Paul, wrote this about what does it look like to live wisely in your home. Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being a royal, the rule over his wife a constitutional rule. Just, I'll make a comment about this. Uh, Aristotle's saying um, there are three parts to having a good home. One is that a man has to rule well over his slaves. He has to rule well, secondly, over his wife. He has to rule well, thirdly, over his children. And then he says, let me talk about the wife and children. He says, you know, he, both of these, uh, he rules over both, but there's sort of a distinction. His rule over his wife, he says, is a constitutional rule. What he means by this, and I think you'll see it as I quote a little bit more from this, he's saying men and women are different. Constitutionally, they're made differently. The man has capacities that his wife doesn't have, so he has a constitutional rule over his wife. He's just made to do things around leading and discernment and decision-making that his wife can't do as well, so he's supposed to rule over her. And his rule over his children, Aristotle says, is royal. And I think the idea that he's getting across here is that, you know, to think about kings and princes, you know, there's a season in a prince's life where it's not appropriate for him to act like a king yet. He's going to grow up to become like his father, but he's not quite ready for that yet. Aristotle probably honestly would not have been too concerned about young girls and what they were going to grow up to be like, but he would clearly say, you know, young people, children, by virtue of being young, it's appropriate that the adults, and particularly their fathers, rule over them. Uh, let me just go on here. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, here's the constitutional difference between men and women in Aristotle's mind. The male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the older and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. So men are more capable of decision-making and leadership than women, and adults are more capable of decision-making and leadership than children. That's Aristotle's thinking about how... Uh, how families ought to work and why men should rule over both their wives and their children. And then he goes on to say, this is why masters or men in their homes should rule over their slaves. He says this, the free man rules over the slave after another manner from that in which the male rules over the female or the man over the child. Although the parts of the soul are present in all of them, um, they are present in different degrees. For the slave has no deliberative faculty at all. Uh, Aristotle saying it's appropriate for masters to rule over slaves because slaves are totally different from free men. They do not have deliberative capacity in Aristotle's thinking. So that's, uh, that's striking. Um, then he says the woman has deliberative uh, faculty, but, not, but it is without authority. The child has deliberative capacity, but is, it is immature. So it must necessarily be with moral virtues also. All may be supported to partake, uh, all may be supposed to partake of them, but only in such manner and degree as is required by each for the fulfillment of his duty. So he's saying, you know, men and women are different in their decision-making and leadership capacity. Adults and children are different in that respect. Slaves and masters are, are, are different in that respect. And this is written, as I say, about 300 years before Paul turns in Ephesians now to say, I want to talk to you about a well-ordered home and what it means to live in a manner worthy of the calling you've received, not just as a church, but also in your households, and I want to talk, interestingly, about wives and husbands, parents and children, slaves and masters. Aristotle wasn't the only one to think in these terms. Josephus writes along this line. And Philo, who was a Jewish philosopher contemporary to Paul, also writes about a well-ordered home in terms of how 
men and uh, husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters ought to operate with each other inside the home. The fact that Paul is picking up this idea of a household code that's out there in the culture, to me, makes it more interesting. How is Paul's household code going to be different from the household codes that were already out there? In Paul's day, everybody knew that a man ought to be the head of his home. Everybody knew that a husband ought to have authority over his wife. Everybody knew that parents ought to have authority over their children. And Paul isn't taking that away. Uh, I think some, some good comment has been made that part of what Paul is doing here is saying, live in your households in a way that doesn't uh, uh, create a stumbling block for your neighbors. Your neighbors have expectations of a well-ordered home. Live in a well-ordered uh, home in that manner. And I think Paul's also affirming that uh, in particular that men have a special responsibility in the leadership of their home. But it's interesting some of the things that Paul says that must have really stood out to his, uh, his readers who would have been familiar with the ideas of men leading over their wives, men leading over their children, men leading over uh, their, their slaves, their bond servants, their employees, or, or however uh, we best understand that. Um, because he does say Uh, Husbands, verse 25 of Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Then in verse 33, Let each of you, husbands, Love your wife as himself. So what's going to stand out, I think, to the readers of Ephesians, the first ones, is not that Paul is saying that men are are the head of their household. That's something that Aristotle already knew hundreds of years before. That's been well taught. What stands out, I think, to a first reader is this responsibility that Paul says, but husbands, you're supposed to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You're supposed to love your wives as you love yourselves. So if anything, I think Paul is equalizing or balancing this idea that's already out there in the culture in a pretty radical way. Similarly, when he turns to the next topic of parents and children, listen to what he says to fathers in verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers don't have a blank check to treat their kids however they want. They're told not to provoke them, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then speaking to masters, which we'll get to in another sermon, he says in verse verse 9 of Ephesians 6, Masters, stop threatening. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And so... Uh, masters don't have this sort of carte blanche to treat uh, their bond servants, uh, however uh, the others in the culture might be doing. So, with all that in mind, let me just make a couple of comments about these very straightforward verses in Ephesians 6. This is part of living a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called. It's responding to the gospel in our homes. And first of all, he says, children... Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, this is not him saying, if your parents are Christians, if they're in the Lord, obey them. Um, It's much more, I think, because we see him doing the same thing with bond servants. He's saying, think of your obedience to your parents in light of, this is an opportunity for me to honor the Lord, to recognize that the real authority that I want to obey, the one that I really want to be submitted to and subject to, the one that I really want to reverence, like he says in Ephesians 5.21, is the Lord, so I'm going to be obedient to my parents. Then in verse 2, honor your father and mother. So not only obey them, which is the kind of instruction you'd give to a young child, 
but also honor them. This is something for any of us whose parents are still alive. We still have the opportunity to honor our parents. And the rationale is still the same, that we, we obey our parents as a way of showing we want to be obedient to Christ. We honor our parents because we want to honor the Lord. Uh, and he says this comes uh, with a promise, so he's, he's taking this from the Ten Commandments, where the promise uh, is given. And he adjusts the promise a little bit and says that if you live this way in obedience and honoring your parents, things are going to go well for you, and you'll live well, in, you'll live long in the land. Um, and then he turns his attention to uh, parents, and particularly fathers, it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Um, just to sort of end this off, I mean, it's easy for us, all the kids are downstairs, it's easy for us to say, well, you know, children should, you know, obey us if we're parents. You know, children should honor us, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, don't forget Mother's Day and Father's Day and all those, my birthday, you know, all that sort of thing. Like, um, yeah, it would be easy for me to go, yeah, I, that's what Ephesians 6 is about. I've got four of these kids, uh, which is, you know, Julie and I have four children. So, you know, they ought to obey me and they ought to honor me. Um, but that, you know, the truth is, um, probably since most of us are, are adults here, it's a little bit more helpful to think, and, and many of us um, have children, to think about what Paul does in verse 4. Um, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is convicting. Um, because it's not hard for me to think of times when I have provoked my kids to anger. It's not hard for me to think of times when in my own, because of my impatience, because of my self-centeredness, because of, um, did I say impatience already? <laughs> Just because of my own immaturity, that I, I've hurt my kids. I've provoked them to anger. If we wanted to have a session this afternoon, come on back, I'll get my four kids here. They can just all tell you for, the, for two hours about all the things I've done wrong. You know, we'd have to cut them off at, at the end of two hours and say, that's enough. Like, it's very easy to go into this ditch of being sort of immature as an adult and particularly as a man and to let that immaturity and that sinfulness in me hurt my kids because I'm, I'm giving them cause to say, this isn't fair, this isn't right, and I'm provoking them to anger. But the other thing that I've, I, I have to admit is that it's it's been the case, and it's so easy for me to drift in the other direction, not being this sort of active, annoying, um, sort of domineering dad who, you know, makes it all about him and all that, but just to become really passive, to be sort of invisible in my own family, to not take up the mantle of bringing up my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So if the path is that I'm not... I'm, I'm walking this way, and one ditch over here is being this provoker and annoying my kids, and the other ditch over here is being this passive father who's not guiding his children and raising them in the instruction of the Lord. I've spent a lot of time in both ditches, to be honest. And I think any father who reflects, uh, you know, our first daughter was born in 96, so we, I have some time to sort of think back, and it's interesting how memory works, and sometimes I think because of yeah, sometimes maybe because of Satan, the, the bad stuff comes to mind and you're sort of confronted with these mistakes you've made and on both sides of the ditch. But I, I can do that. Um, and Paul's saying, no, don't, don't do that. Walk down this path where you're encouraging your kids, you're nurturing them, you're not giving them reason to come against you with offense, but you are being active and you're engaging and you're bringing them up in the instruction of the Lord. So, the difficulty with maybe a passage that's so straightforward is that it can produce um, feelings of, of guilt and discouragement. And, uh, you know, we can leave here going, oh man, like I've blown it this way and that way with my kids and so on. 
And, uh, and so I just want to say this about these, these instructions, that um, uh, Paul is giving this to us in light of the gospel. Uh, he's, he's encouraging us in a direction of faithfulness and goodness and wholesomeness that's going to be fruitful and productive in our lives and in the lives of our families. And, you know, the Lord is, part of what he's doing in Ephesians 5 is saying, always remember, whether it's in your marriage or in your household, that, that Jesus is at the center of it all. And so the ultimate um, the ultimate one that we want to honor is the Lord Jesus. And similarly, as fathers, as mothers, the ultimate one we want to look to on the, for the sake of our children is the Lord himself. He will never provoke his children to anger. God doesn't treat his children that way. When he disciplines us, it's always for our good. We will never be able to bring an accusation against God and say, you know, in the end, that wasn't right, that wasn't fair, that was just cruel. That's not how God is. He's a perfect father, and he disciplines those he loves. And he's also very active in our lives. He's active through his word. He's active by the Holy Spirit. He's active through the church as he encourages us with the gifts of others to grow up and mature in, in, in Christ. And so as, as parents, as imperfect parents, as we look at, you know, we've received imperfect parenting, we've delivered imperfect parenting out into the world, let's be encouraged again by the gospel that, that the wonder of what God is doing is that he's made us his children. And that whether we're parents or children, uh, and whether we're in this ditch or that ditch, the, the wonderful truth is that God is our Father. And that Christ is, is with us. Uh, at, he's our older brother. And we can, all of us, no matter what our position is, look to him for the perfect parenting that, that he alone can give and trust him for that.